Welcome to our Founders Lecture Series. In 1982, Inabara began classes in Bangor with just 86 students and 11 staff. Fast forward four decades and the school has experienced incredible change and growth, welcoming almost 1,200 students and more than 200 staff each day. This series honors a small group of pioneers whose vision led to what Inaburo has become today. In 2023, we continue to welcome guest speakers who are respected thinkers across the domains of education, the arts, psychology, theology, and philosophy to enrich our professional learning community here at Inaburo and more broadly. We hope you enjoy. I just want to say a few things by way of introduction. First of all, to acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the land upon which we are meeting, the Darawal people. At Inabara, we uh, thank our God for his uh, guidance upon us, but also recognize that the Darawal people have been here for many, many years on this land. And on this land, they have taught their children their beliefs, knowledge, and culture. This place continues to be a place of teaching and learning as we are here all tonight, hopefully, to learn and to be encouraged to think about how we can be raising the next generation with hope and resilience rather than uh, despair and a sense that everything is hopeless. So um, we are very fortunate tonight to have Lisa Aitken with us to speak. It uh, turns out that I first met Lisa about 30 years ago. Sorry to give away your age in, in part. We were both studying medicine together at UNSW before we both saw the light, so to speak, and moved across to psychology. Lisa has spent over 20 years in the clinical space, counselling in private practice, as well as supervising in psychiatric hospitals and providing workplace support. Lisa is just about to finish her PhD on the psychology of hope, which incorporates philosophical and theological perspectives on hope, as well as her own research on the state of hope in Australian society. Lisa is passionate about applying psychological research to real-life dilemmas and is here to give our second 2023 Founders Lecture this evening. Join me in welcoming Lisa to speak with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming out on a, a chilly evening. And I have to warn you, you're my guinea pigs tonight with bifocals. So I'll see how I go. I hope it works. <laughs> So we're talking about building hope in young people. And this began for me about 10 years ago. I got curious about my clients in clinical practice, some of whom felt very stuck in their lives. And then others who had almost the same issues, there seemed to be a capacity to not be stuck. And I was trying to work out what the difference was. I thought, I think it's hope. And so that started this long journey of what is hope and how do you research hope? How do you study it? But why is it particularly relevant for young people? Well, part of my research, so I did two rounds of research in 2018 and in 2020. In 2020, I asked people, what is your best realistic hope for humanity? So this was just a bunch of typical Australians. And there was a massive generational difference. The over 45s like me had plenty of hope. They said humanity will flourish into many future generations. The under 25s, it wasn't quite like that. Their best hope, overwhelmingly, there was a massive statistical difference. Their best hope was that things don't get worse. They said things like this, that more wars don't break out, that anxiety and suicide rates don't rise further, that the climate emergency doesn't escalate, that the oceans don't drown themselves in a sea of plastic. There's this sense of overwhelm there, isn't there? That this sort of cynicism. But is it really hope? If it's just that things don't get worse, where's the vision for the future that can pull back and motivate them if that's 
all there is. Back in the 1960s, Jürgen Moltzmann, you'll hear a fair bit from Jürgen Moltzmann tonight. He's one of my favorite theologians, so he'll pop in a bit. But he said, let us not fall victim to the worst of all utopias, the utopia of the status quo. Where do you go with that? And yet that is where young people are at. In 2021, you might be familiar with this research. It was 10,000 young people, all under 25, in 10 countries. And it's in the Lancet. And they were asked about eco-anxiety. 75% said when they think about the future, it's just frightening. And 60% said it makes them feel anxious, angry, and hopeless. So there is a bit of a crisis of hope in young people, I think it's fair to say. But what even is hope? Let's go back to the beginning. This was my question 10 years ago or so. I did what we would do. I went to the psychological research and it's actually the same as the educational research. And there's one definition and measurement tool for hope that's used everywhere. And in that, hope has two components. Firstly, that you have been good at achieving goals in the past. You have agency. Secondly, that you're good at problem solving to achieve goals in the future. And that's it. That is hope. <laughs> now, to me, that just sounds a lot like goal attainment or self-efficacy, you know, self-confidence about achievement. It's problematic. So this is the actual scale. And as you can see, it's all about me. I energetically pursue my goals. I've been pretty successful in life. I can think of lots of ways to get out of a jam. Do you think that's hope? I don't, clearly. <laughs> because what about if you're going for surgery? Don't you have to hope in your surgeon? What about Climate anxiety and climate change, I mean, that individual's capacity to achieve goals in the past has got very little to do with our hope for resolving those sort of issues or those big, wicked problems. What about hoping God? You actually can't even hope in God or whatever higher power you have in this way of understanding hope. It's pretty problematic. And then I thought, well, okay, if that's not hope, what is it? <laughs> How do I work it out? I got out the Love Learnings Understanderscope. And this talk is about having eyes to see the different elements of hope with a big picture perspective. So what I ended up doing was going through a huge amount of literature and psychological research, coming up with a different definition of hope. Then you have to do all the statistical work to turn that into a measurement tool that can be used in research. And this is why not many people have done this and we stuck with the old one because <laughs> it's taken me eight years to do this. But it's nearly there. September, I, God willing, I submit my thesis. And so far, the stats have worked out well. But tonight, we're looking at a broad perspective of hope. And there'll be probably in this talk, you know, one or two elements that will really resonate with you. And that's fine because we're going to cover a lot of ground. This is where I started. Don't know where you'd start if you had to go, oh gosh, what is hope? This was two years of reading. <laughs> Tried to read the original, started with Plato and worked my way through the original writing in English, of course. This is just a selected few. So I tried to get my head in the foundational thinkers of the West and what they each had to say about hope. Plus the last line there points out lots of psychological research. About 50 years, psychologists have been interested in hope. And there's been a lot of research around the edges or where people, have, psychologists have just said, what do you think hope is to people and not imposed a definition? So grounded research. So I've drawn on a lot of that. First, we need to differentiate hope from a few of its cousins. Firstly, hope versus fantasy. I could say I hope to be a unicorn, but really <laughs> that is a fantasy. Hope has to be realistic. 
And the difference between hopes and goals is really important. That previous agency and pathways one really, I think, just confuses hopes and goals. For thousands of years, people have said hopes are uncertain. So I have a goal to go to my Pilates class tomorrow morning. And sure, nothing's, you know, 100% certain, but there's nothing really getting in the way of me going to my class. That's a goal. But hopes are not sure that they'll happen. There's a high degree of uncertainty. And wants are also differentiated from hope in the sense that we could say, I hope for ice cream after dinner. That's not really the right use of hope. I want ice cream. If you ask most people in the West, they will say hopes are for noble, meaningful things. You hope for healing when someone's terminally ill. You hope the war in Ukraine will come to a a peaceful resolution. We hope that the climate will manage to be resolved and, and healed. Hope demands big picture, noble things. And lastly, hope versus optimism. If you're optimistic, about 50% of you here will be optimists, 50% will be pessimists, statistically. If you're optimistic, you will just assume the best, but you won't necessarily act to bring it about. Hope, if you hope for something, you will act to bring it about. So they're just, just to clarify what hope is. I think hope involves three areas based on a lot of reading, as you can see, and a bit of my own research. It's acting and thinking and feeling, which is part of why it's so hard to pin down. That's a really big construct. It's got all those three. More specifically, the acting is both others acting, like your surgeon or God, and a sort of a waiting and a coping part of acting. The thinking is a belief that there's meaningful possibilities in the future. And the feeling comes from glimpses of what you hope for. So as I said, I've turned this into a questionnaire, which hopefully can be used in the future. So let's start with the action piece. What are the actions of hope? Well, it's not all about me. (laughs) It's also about action by others, isn't it? To start with, what I call external agency. I'm assuming all of you here are either parents or teachers. And having eyes to see your contributions to the hope of young people is really important. So if they're in year seven and they're looking at getting through an HSC, there's a lot of uncertainty and time, you know, between one year to that. And so you have a part to play in them getting through the HSC, of course, if you're a parent or a teacher, or developing good friendships. You'll have a part to play in encouraging, you know, time together, having conversations, Their grand hope is to they feel very talented in a sport or a music. Then, of course, as teachers and parents, you have a part to play in enabling those skills to develop, to have hope. And that external agency is really important. But it can also be collective, a sustaining community where hope is borrowed and shared. So a school community can work together, can't it? There's some hopes I'm sure you have that you can only do together or a family. You know, you think about again, the climate issue, it has to be collective agency, doesn't it, to solve this? There's no way of just doing this as an individual. And lastly, in this topic, the idea of belonging is really important with hope. So I asked people, and I wonder what your answer would be to this question, how many relationships do you have in which you feel you belong, right? You trust that they've got your back, there's a love and a trust. And there was a huge correlation between the relationships that the people felt they belonged in and how hopeful they were. 
It's really, really important. There's an economist, hello to all economics teachers out there, economist called Carol Graham. And economists are actually becoming really interested in hope as a metric for well-being. You know, they normally do income and educational status and that sort of thing, but they're starting to use hope as a well-being metric. And she looked at hope in young people, 18 to 21-year-olds, in Peru and in America. And these were really impoverished communities in both places. The young people in the States were incredibly hopeless. They had almost none. And she was just asking them for their own definitions of hope, but consistently really hopeless. White communities, much worse than black communities in the States. She also asked young people in Peru, just as impoverished, in fact, in some ways more impoverished than American, they were incredibly hopeful. And she said, what is the difference? It's the communities. The Peruvians have big extended families and very involved in the Catholic church. And there's this sense of belonging and trust and there's people around who've got your back. And she really has shown in her research that that sense of belonging is very powerful. What about the external agency or the agency of God or spiritual forces, given there's, I looked it up today, there's 8 billion people in the world and about 85% of them have some sort of spiritual belief. So to have a definition of hope in which you cannot hope in anything spiritual seems a bit crazy to me. I know it's less in the Western world, but still. There is a bucket load of research, and many of you I'm sure are aware of it, on the correlation between what's called intrinsic spirituality and hope and well-being more broadly. So I ask people in my research just how important are your spiritual beliefs in how you live your life? Again, pretty much a straight line correlation with how hopeful they were, which is what a lot of research shows. Intrinsic spirituality is important to define. Clearly, as we know from royal commissions and the like, there's spiritual communities which are not good for some people's well-being, very bad for it, but intrinsic spirituality is the type of spirituality where you choose it, it's not being dragged to church each week. Also, you have a relationship of trust with God, or however you conceive of the high power, but there's this trust, and you're in a community of like-minded people that is supportive. So that's intrinsic spirituality, and it definitely correlates with not only hope, but broader well-being. And of course, in a Christian framework, it doesn't make sense to have a definition of hope where you can't look to the agency of God, because our ultimate hope after death relies on him sending Jesus and Jesus' death and his resurrection for that hope. That's not our agency. And of course, our everyday hopes of prayer, we're calling out to God and it's a collaboration. We're doing our part, but we're also asking God for his help. The agency of hope isn't just others or spiritual forces. It's also action by you or the young person that you're thinking of right now. But it's a really unique type of agency because you've got to wait and you've got to cope while you're waiting for your hope and you have to stay poised and ready to act to bring it about if you can. So this comes up in the Bible in Romans. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. Tertullian, back in the third century, defined hope as patience with the lamp lit. Isn't it great? Like you're poised, you're ready to bring about your hope. You're not a passive blob, you're not despairing, you're ready to go, but you're patient. And for the English teachers in the room, T.S. Eliot has a beautiful, a beautiful poem, The Four Quartets. And this is what he says in that. Well, he's writing it just after World War II. And he's saying there's all these young men 
coming back in body bags. This is such a dark time in England. And he's struggling with hope. And he says, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. The hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. There is this inevitable waiting in hope while we work out exactly what we are to hope for. And I think it's a bit of a lost art. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've lost the art of waiting. You know, if something doesn't download on my phone, I was trying to download a podcast. It was taking, you know, I get so frustrated. I Come on, now please. I wanted just now. I was trying to introduce my children to a TV show that I used to watch when I was a teenager. So this is like early 80s. Oh my gosh, it's so slow. It's just so, I thought I've lost this capacity to wait and just do slowness. And it's really hard, I think, for young people to wait in the age that we're in. So the seesaw is there because I want to talk about a thing called overfunctioning and underfunctioning. Some of you might be familiar with Bowen Family Systems Theory, which is a, a model of psychology. And in this, we say, like, here's two people. Here's you as a parent or a teacher, and here's a young person. The seesaw is one person overfunctioning, another person can be underfunctioning. As we've said, you don't want as a teacher or parent to underfunction in helping young people have hope. You have a, a role that you have to take seriously to help them bring about what they're hoping for. You know, teaching your subject well, taking them to the, the sporting events and the music lessons. But adults can overfunction, can't we, as teachers or parents and do too much? In terms of not, and of course, what does that do if you overfunction? The young person underfunctions. <laughs> so you do too much, you help them too much with their homework, you're too involved, you're over teaching, over prepping for um, assessments. You can do too much, and this leads the young person to have the agency sucked out of them, they lose their confidence. So, and, and also too much reassurance if they're anxious can actually make things worse. I think one of the ways we also overfunction is when they're struggling and waiting in uncertainty, we step in too much. Oh, no, 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 I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, you'll get that great mark, you'll get into the team or you see them struggling in a friendship and you want to step in and solve it all for them. And that overfunctioning robs them of the sitting in the uncertainty and the waiting and the coping. Aquinas had something to say about this in the 1200s. I don't know if anyone's read Aquinas. It's extraordinary. His stuff on hope could be in a modern day psychology textbook. It's pages and pages and it's really perceptive. And there's Aquinas. And he says there's two things that are the opposite of hope. Despair, we know about despair, but also presumption. So despair is when you don't sit in the uncertainty and you just go, It'll, it's a disaster, it won't happen, it'll never happen. Presumption is when, of course, it'll be fine. Of course, you'll do well. It's all good. Yeah, I know. I've got this. Totally. And you assume it's definitely going to happen. Hope has to sit in the uncertainty. It may not happen. It may happen. And that's a really hard skill set. Aquinas talks about when we're hoping we're in this thing called the statue viatoris, which apparently is Latin for, makes sense, for the status of the via, the way, of being a pilgrim on the way of letting young people be on this journey and not rushing in to comfort them. 
I'm a terrible overfunctioner as a parent. My kids are in their late 20s now, so like, there's less opportunity. But it's awful, isn't it? And as a teacher as well, to sit when young people are themselves anxious or uncertain or they just want things resolved. It's us managing our anxiety about their anxiety and then we step in too much rather than letting them be pilgrims on the way. Jürgen Moltmann again, he says, in despair and presumption alike, we have the rigidifying and freezing of the truly human element, which hope alone can keep flowing and free. This hope keeps him in statu via Taurus, in that unresolved openness to world questions. Isn't that gorgeous? This openness, and I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but I can sit in it. As a Christian, he says, this will one day be resolved. So helping them sit in the uncertainty of waiting is important and coping, therefore, is part of hoping. I asked people in my research in 2018, what do you do to make yourself hopeful? There's no statistical difference between those percentages. So like a fifth of people said, oh, I'd pray or read my scripture or, and some people said I'd knit. And at first I'm going, why are you knitting to feel more hopeful or going for a run? Or I'd talk to a supportive person or I'd plan what to do. I'd imagine what I hope for. But quite a lot of those are coping, aren't they? People have got this instinct that they're going to have to wait and cope. So every time you help a young person cope, the uncertainty and the waiting, you're helping them hope. And there's this beautiful idea, which again, Jürgen Moltmann points out, that in the Christian tradition, it's not just that we are waiting for our hopes, but that God waits for us. And he says the ultimate reason for our hope is not to be found at all in what we want, wish for, and wait for. The ultimate reason is we are wanted and wished for and waited for. Does anything await us at all? Or are we alone? Whenever we base our hope on trust in the divine mystery, we feel deep down in our hearts there is someone who is waiting for you, who is hoping for you, who believes in you, this belonging at the heart of the universe. We are waited for as the prodigal son in the parable is waited for by his father. We are accepted and received as a mother takes her children into her arms and comforts them. God is our last hope because we are God's first love. It's really beautiful, isn't it? That idea, that sense of belonging and being waited for by God. So let's move beyond agency and talk about the second part, the thinking part, the belief in a future of meaningful possibilities. Kierkegaard calls hope a passion for the possible. This idea of having possibilities is crucial for hope. Meaningful. Why meaningful possibilities? Because if I said to you, what is hope? And I just asked you, probably lots of you would say, oh, it's when you assume the future is going to be good or, or better at least. But at the time I was doing this, I was reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning about hope in a concentration camp. I was also reading a lot about hope in palliative care in the nursing literature. So there's times in the world that we're in when we still have to hope, and I've counseled quite a few people with terminal diagnoses over the years, you still need hope. But hope that things will be meaningful covers everything. It covers those situations as well as the good and the positive hopes like that, more enjoyable hopes, I guess. Now, what I want to talk about now are two things which get in the way of possibility thinking, right? To hope you have to have not only the whole range of possibilities, because it's it's uncertain, right? So you, yes, there may be negative possibilities to neutral possibilities and positive possibilities. We actually need to be able to sit with all of them. But there's two things which really bias our thinking to the negative possibilities and therefore undermine hope. 
and especially for young people, and those two things are anxiety and addiction. Now, I probably can hear um, your hearts all sinking at this point. You go, oh my gosh, they are big topics, aren't they? And they're growing issues with young people. But let me give you a hopeful lens as we talk about them, and it'll just be brief. Think about it this way. Every time you help a young person manage their anxiety a bit better, manage their social media addiction a bit better, or their sugar addiction, then you are helping them have hope because you're opening up their their thinking to possibility. So let me explain. So the first challenge is anxiety. I'm sure you're all familiar with this idea that in our brains, our amygdala, deep in our limbic system, scans the world for threat. And if it finds it, the whole fight flight system gets it off. You know the deal. My classic example is you're walking down a dark alley. It's two in the morning. There's footsteps coming up behind you alone. And of course, you want your heart pounding and your muscles tense because you're going to have to do the fight flight literally and survive. But then the thing that happens as well is your prefrontal cortex here goes offline. Where does all your positive, meaningful possibility thinking live? (laughs) In your prefrontal cortex. But if you're anxious, it's gone offline. We say you flipped your lid. You're probably familiar with that idea. And your thinking goes to worst case scenarios. Is that side alley or blind alley? What if there's more than one of them? What if they've got guns? Great survival thinking. But if young people are constantly feeling exposed to threat, especially on their devices, <laughs> you know, in, when I was a kid, gosh, if I, if I just didn't look at a newspaper or turn the TV news on, I wasn't exposed. Nowadays, it's 24-7, isn't it? This overwhelming feeling of threat. You, you all know that. And so we've got a lot of young people with their lids permanently almost flipped. And it feels like we have a societal lid flip, that this focus on the negative and worst case scenario is just, it's the air we breathe now. And it's, of course, narrows our capacity as well to think about the positive possibilities. Because if we're always in survival mode, we're always doing worst case scenario thinking. Quick tips, and I'm sure again you're familiar with this. These will, will be reminders, but these are some things I talk about with parents in my practice. I mostly see parents who have young people with multiple diagnoses, and my job is to help the parents cope. Helping young people with anxiety. Firstly, reducing exposure to online overwhelm. I know that is all of this is going to be easier said than done, I know, but having that as a goal because it really is a problem. Do you know the average age that a child is intentionally given a, usually a phone or an iPad, a screen, according to the American Pediatric Society, four months. This is the first generation, isn't it, that are growing up with this sense of overwhelm. So if you can, it's about reducing exposure talking it through. When we have to put feelings into words, the feelings shift from our limbic system in the back of our brain to our prefrontal cortex. Now that's really good news <laughs> because now it's active, now it's moving and it's and they have a capacity to think about other possibilities. If someone's stuck in worst case scenario thinking, you don't want to be too contrary, do you? You don't want to polarize it where they say, oh, it's all terrible. And you say, no, it's wonderful. And they go, no, it's even more terrible. You go, no, it's even more wonderful. And we end up polarizing. So you do have to acknowledge, to hope is to acknowledge, yes, it may not go well, but there's other middle road possibilities and there's even good and meaningful possibilities that we can focus on as well. The embodied piece is crucial. Our body has feedback loops. So although the anxiety starts in your brain and then your body gets the, you know, the fight, flight and the reaction, 
it works the other way around too. If you slow your breathing and calm your muscles and your exercise and your body's in a relaxed state, even massage, yay, works. <laughs> it has a feedback loop back up to your brain and goes, calm down. You can stop releasing as much cortisol and adrenaline, the stress hormones. Exercise, getting out in nature, breathing, mindfulness. These are crucial because it works both ways. To not encourage avoidance of real life necessities if possible. So as I'm sure you know, if you let kids because they're anxious and they've all got the language of multiple anxiety disorders now, it astonishes me. Primary age kids know their anxiety disorders. I can tell you what they've got and they can use it, of course. Who wants to do what makes you anxious? And yet that's going to make anxiety worse. In as much as you can, granted there are times anxiety is too extreme or there's other things going on, but if you can, it's about encouraging children to face their anxieties if they need to and reducing the intense anxious parental focus. This was my task during my children's teenage years. Every issue they had, I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And I had to learn to step back. Because if you're super anxious and focused on them and I've got this problem and I'm going to solve it, it just adds a layer of anxiety. It actually makes it worse. So pulling back, not too much anxious focus or reassuring and letting them step up and self-soothe and manage themselves is key. Like I said, I'm sure you're familiar with those, but just a reminder, I didn't want to raise the topic of anxiety without saying something helpful as well. Okay, the second challenge is addiction. And the problem with addiction, and we all think, you know, alcohol or drugs, but there's many, many things increasingly in our society to be addicted to is that it narrows your options of possibilities. Again, I'm sure some of you know how addiction works. If you have something that is rewarding, dopamine, the neurotransmitter, spikes in your brain. We are around things which are unnaturally intensely rewarding. Relationships and positive feedback from a friend is going to cause a bit of a dopamine rise. When you've got a hundred likes and you've posted something on social media and you tell, oh my gosh, what are people going to say? Is it going to be good or bad? Your dopamine's going intensely wild. Or you eat a piece of fruit, you get a nice little rise in dopamine. You eat a massive processed sugar, way too intense. Our brains get flooded. When they get flooded, this natural mechanism is, oh my gosh, I'm going to, our brain reduces the dopamine receptors. And now you need even more of the thing just to feel not even good anymore, but okay. And your thinking narrows to the only thing that's going to make me feel okay is that. If it's a social media addiction, which is growing, the child is going to wake up and the only thing they're thinking, the first thing they're thinking, oh gosh, I've got to check my phone. It might not be a child. It might be some of us. <laughs> I shouldn't. But it narrows what is going to make you feel okay. And on the one hand, it narrows the possibilities. You're not thinking about all the other good things and your big picture hopes, but also the content of both. The two I want to look at are social media addiction and processed food addiction. They both massively contribute to depression and anxiety. So quick look. This is the Bergen Social Media Disorder Scale that we use to diagnose. You spend a lot of time thinking about social media or planning how to use it. And you can replace social media with alcohol, online shopping, chocolate. And I'm not, I'm not being flippant about chocolate. Drugs, doesn't matter, right? So you spend a lot of time thinking about, in this case, social media. Very salient. Feel an urge to use it more and more. You've developed tolerance and a craving. You use social media in order to forget about personal problems to modify your mood. You've tried to cut down without success, this loss of control. Become troubled if someone stops you using your social media and you use it so much it has a negative impact on your job or studies. 
Those are the definitions of addiction. At the moment in ICD-10, which is the international version of the DSM, so these are all the lists of mental health diagnostic, you know, think the checklist for what fits this diagnosis or not. ICD-11, the one that's just come out, has gaming disorder, and that's certainly a big issue. And ICD-12, they're almost surely going to have social media disorder as well. So, I mean, we could have talked about gaming, but social media covers both genders. The Goldilocks theory, which seems to be where the research is heading, and this is not overall device use, this is just social media. So this is a range, isn't it? This is YouTube and FaceTime and Twitch and TikTok and all of them. An hour a day is about right. Young people who don't use any tend to be a bit too isolated, certainly high schoolers. It's not a great idea, but beyond an hour is problematic. Some of you might have read Jean Twenge's book, awesome title. <laughs> Why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy and completely unprepared for adulthood and what that means for the rest of us. This is her research on social media. It's a sobering read, worth it. She's a world-class researcher. Likewise, Jonathan Haidt, he's more interested in the societal impact and his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is his reflections as a university professor on the children that are coming through and starting university and how social media has made them terrified to be differed. You know, you can't have a proper debate anymore and emotionally fragile. And he puts that down to social media. If you're interested, they're really interesting books. This is a UK study. And again, we're looking at that sort of one hour, it seems to be okay. And girls are much more impacted here than boys. And if we did gaming, we'd have a lot, much bigger boy impact. But look at this, teens depressed. So by the time you get to five hours a day of social media, you're up to nearly 40% of people, of children, fitting a diagnosis of depression. The difference in suicidality between one hour and five hours is 66% increase. This is really problematic. Now, if kids can manage it themselves, great. If it's a true addiction, then they need help. <laughs> you need whatever capacity you're in and need to help them. In Australia, the average spent about two hours. So it's not too bad. A lot of kids are managing this fine. We're looking for the ones who are up the extreme end. It's going to impact their hope. Ultra-processed food and sugar addiction. There is a huge amount of recent research on this in the last five years, that sugar can be a psychoactive addictive substance. I've just done a year-long course based in Sweden, lectures at 2am, <laughs> it was interesting, on addiction, and they included a lot about this. And the same problem with the process of a narrow focus about food, and it actually increases anxiety and depression. For the first time ever, I have parents having safes in their kitchen because they're young people, often with multiple diagnoses, they're anxious or they've got ASD or ADHD. They cannot control themselves around food. It's a true addiction. Obviously not for everyone. Most people can drink alcohol. Some people will get addicted. There are some young people who will get addicted. Having said that, it's not great for any person who's struggling. So eating a diet high in sugar and processed food lowers your serotonin. And you know, I'm sure you all know about serotonin, right? It helps you in terms of being happy. 90% of your serotonin is made in your gut and then it travels up to your brain. What you eat massively impacts your serotonin levels. If you eat a high sugar, high processed food, it spikes and then it plummets. I'm forever saying to these parents who do all this baking with their depressed and anxious kids, please don't. If they are on an SSRI antidepressant for anxiety or depression, you're just doing the exact opposite of what the drug's trying to do in terms of keeping serotonin levels high in their brain by feeding them crappy food. Applies for us as well. This is not just for young people. It also lowers GABA, which is a neurotransmitter that keeps us calm. If you've got an anxious person, 
It impacts melatonin. There's no point giving a young person melatonin tablets and then giving them a bunch of sugar and processed food. Brain mitochondrial function, it impacts their capacity to concentrate. And BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is really important for neuroplasticity. This is recent research. You probably are not aware of it, but it's really, again, sobering. It increases glutamate, which causes brain fog and memory issues, inflammation, leaky gut, insulin resistance. We all know about the link with diabetes and Alzheimer's, which is now called type 3 diabetes, and adrenaline. This is healthy teenage boys, and some were given straight sugar. And five hours after, look at their adrenaline spike. Now, if you've got a child that's already anxious and stressed, or you're anxious and stressed, and you've got lots of cortisol and adrenaline, but it's not straight away. It's uh, five hours later. Likewise, this one, so this is after you eat, you've got like half an hour, you feel great. (laughs) You've eaten some processed food, your blood glucose is up. The lines of blood glucose and insulin. But look at that. At the dip, there's some blue writing. Hopefully you can see it. And it says adrenaline, cortisol, and glucagon. So these start to be released there, and then they're just going to go up and up and up. Deakin University in Australia is spearheading this, and they found that reducing ultra-processed food reduces anxiety and depression, even for severe depression. This is a hopeful one, (laughs) as it'll probably be in ICD-12. Robert Lustig is a pediatric endocrinologist. His book, Metabolical, goes through all this. Georgia Ede is a psychiatrist. Uh, This is her website if you're interested in mental health, just mental health and food. Jen Unwin is a clinical psychologist. This is on food addiction, if you're interested in sugar addiction. Just take a deep breath. (laughs) We just did a whole lot of of, um, download of information and your head's probably swimming. You go, oh my gosh. (laughs) As I said, the positive about it is when you're working on these things with young people, you're actually helping them be hopeful because you're helping this prefrontal cortex, which they need to function to do better. Let's pan out and think big picture. I asked people, what do you put your trust in for the future of humanity? And these were their options. I wonder what you'd say. Government, money, power, science, AI, God, collective action, belief good will conquer evil, things happen for a reason, evolution, inherited wisdom, younger, older generation. Perhaps not surprisingly, the most common answer was science that they put their trust in. But the interesting thing is that did not correlate with hope. People who put their trust in science weren't very hopeful. The only three that correlated with hope were trusting God, we would expect from all the other research, but belief that good will conquer evil and the belief that things will happen for a reason. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, we could be cynical. First, let's say these are things which are like the end of a narrative, aren't they? They're the end of a story. Good will conquer evil. I'll find out the meaning of things, that everything happens for a reason. And we could just say we've listened to, we've watched too many Disney movies. This was actually being written about in Augustine in the third century and Aquinas and beyond. This idea that how you see the end of the story of humanity matters in terms of how much hope you have in the present. How you see the future really matters because it pulls back to the present. You could say, well, we just live in a society that's deeply Christianized and this is the end of the Christian story that good will conquer evil and things will be meaningful, that's part of it. But I'm with C.S. Lewis and he says, if we long for certain things as human, and as I said, you can go back and read Plato and Aristotle and these are the longings, (laughs) thousands of years. If we live in a world where we long for certain things, it's probably because they exist. We get hungry because food exists. 
And he says, if we long for things which we don't see fully in this world, it's probably because they exist in another world and we were made for that world, which of course in Christian framework is the new heavens and the new earth. But that idea that justice and meaning and having a sense that that is in our future is a really important part of hope. Okay, lastly, and this is a quick one, glimpses which create feelings of hope. This is the emotion part of hope. Okay, I want you to imagine. Imagine it's a cold night in Sydney and you're having to be at work sort of or in a hall. And you are imagining a holiday. Now, you don't know if you can get the time off or the money, but you're imagining sitting on a warm beach and there's warm air and there's warm water and you're relaxing. Just imagine for a minute. Do you get a little taste of that emotion, of the relaxation, just a glimpse? This is how hope works. We need a glimpse. And I bet if you did that every day for two weeks, like you imagine this, you are going to be online and booking that holiday because it's deeply motivating to glimpse what you hope for. And there's a theory, pragmatic prospection theory, which expands this. And in this theory, they've pointed out as humans, we actually think about the future twice as much as the past in a non-clinical sample and hopes more than fears. So our natural state in our brains is actually thinking about the future. And their argument is for therapists. Like as a therapist, it's a lot about tell me about your childhood. Now that's relevant. We should get people talking about their hopes and what they think about the future so they can envisage it so it can pull backwards because neuroscience shows that imagining the future creates more intense emotional responses than remembering the past. And it is deeply motivating. It it activates the motivational parts of our brain. And often these glimpses are triggered by embodied things. You know, you see a beautiful artwork or a sunrise and it's just this glimpse of beauty and you realize it's something, you're really hoping for beauty. You taste something, you smell, you touch, you experience something and it triggers your imagination, this mental imagery. And back even Plato talked about, he said imagination was the painter in the soul. He's he's painting these images and, and making you want it. You can choose to see and be the glimpses of hope now. My daughter bought me this mug when I started my thesis because I love tea and I was doing a thesis on hope. So in a time of stress, when you sit down and have a cup of tea, you're glimpsing a hope for rest. So think about it like that. This isn't just a cup of tea. You're actually glimpsing a hope for rest. And this rest may be on the weekend or it may be a holiday or it may be the rest of heaven and a new creation. In the midst of sickness, you have a day of feeling well. See it as a glimpse of a hope of healing. Connecting with a friend that you haven't seen is a glimpse of joy. In a time of grief, you sit quietly with someone, and this is a glimpse for them of love. You are being a glimpse. When life feels ugly, you just see this awesome sunrise, and it's a glimpse of beauty. You create a piece of writing or artwork, or you do something in the garden. It's a glimpse of creativity. A difficult talk which reconciles differences is a glimpse of peace. You comment on a young person's improvement in their musical instruments, but it's a glimpse of, of true mastery, which might be their hope in the future. So it's articulating these as glimpses of hope and for young people as well, finding the little glimpses because we just need glimpses to feel the emotion and get motivated. Package it like that. This is a glimpse of what you hope for and create them when you can. A Christian view says it's actually part of our responsibility to be the glimpse of hope. This is a quote from N.T. Wright. He's talking about heaven. All the beauty, all the goodness, all the pulsating life of the present creation is to be enhanced, lifted to a new level in the world that is to be. 
So there is a strong incentive to work in the present, to anticipate the new world in every possible way. We are called to produce in the present time more and more signposts to point to this eventual and glorious future. So we can be the glimpse for our world of what is to come. Lunig is one of my favourites and he has this poem, The Glimmer, which is sort of a good summary of what we've talked about. You have to wait. We've talked about waiting for the gleam to start. Patience will not hurt you. Glimmer, the glimpse, seeks a weary heart. Hope happens when we're struggling. Sadness is a virtue. A cup of tea has been your prayer. And then without a warning, a tiny sacred speck is there gleaming in the morning. The simple glimmer has arrived. Life has found a way. All that matters, connecting with what's meaningful, has survived. And love and belonging and trust (laughs) has saved the day. That's the presentation. Happy to take a couple of questions. I always talk a little bit longer than I hoped for. So thank you so much for listening for all that time. And as I said, I know that was a lot. Like I'm trying to condense eight years into (laughs) an hour. But hopefully there's one or two things that you'll take away and think about. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing this tonight. Yeah, thank you. I have just a couple of questions. You spoke about anxiety as a way of reducing possibility thinking. What happens in terms of an adult's intervention? What happens if a child can't self-soothe, can't recover back? So they're not functioning for whatever reason. You do it very slowly. <laughs> you, you step in and sure, you may have to guide them through what they need to do gently and slowly. But I guess it's not leaping in and taking over. And absolutely, there's occasions that they are so impaired by whatever issue is going on, anxiety, depression, other issues that they really can't. And it doesn't mean you give up. The task, though, of slowly and gently teaching them how they might do that in the future. The thing I say in in clinical work all the time is it's either balance, tension, or paradox. (laughs) The the solution for most, like, it's always about this sort of having to juggle, and there's rarely just one solution for everything. So, yes, for some children, self-soothing is incredibly difficult, and sometimes it's just a long, slow path. In relation to the idea of paradox and balancing almost not knowing, what thoughts do you have about managing ourselves as we help stay in a state of not resolvedness? Mm. We kind of like things to be complete and have a sense of being fixed. I feel it too. It's really hard to sit in the uncertainty. What I do myself, I'll tell you what I do, is I I notice where I feel it in my body. I often, like if I'm wanting to step in and and help a child, say, and and I'm having to sit in the uncertainty, I notice it. It's normally for me, it's my stomach is churning and I put my hand on it and I say, I've just got to sit with the feeling. It's not going to kill me and I am bigger than this feeling. And I, I teach that to young people as well, that holding where it is in your body and that you as a person are bigger than that feeling. Sometimes it's about uh, challenging unhelpful thinking. You can hear yourself, oh, no, 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 I need to so- solve it, I need to fix it and stay, stop, stop. Do I need to just slow down and sit in this? And yes, it's hard and you have to have a little bit of self-compassion and compassion for young people. It's just a hard human thing <laughs> to sit in uncertainty and not knowing and not rush for a solution but you know if you rush for a solution the solution may not be the right one and final question uh you spoke about the narrowing that happens 
when with something like social media or or the narrowing or addictions to other things, the narrowing of options. Can you speak a little bit more about what you said about the balance of not just all good things, but talking about a range of good and not good things that could happen, the past, the future, that sort of broadening. How do we help to broaden young people's thinking and our own? I guess the first thing is to be aware that's what you're trying to do, (laughs) which requires that sort of stepping back and thinking about the type of conversation you're going to have. And as I said, if, if they've got a narrow perspective, for whatever reason, then you have to validate that because if it's a hope, it's uncertain. And so, yes, there's a chance it could not work. And then there's also going to be neutral perspectives and good ones. If possible, you get the other person to come up with them themselves. Okay, so there's, (laughs) we've clarified that that worst case scenario is an option. What do you think are all the other options? Let's sit down and brainstorm it. And hopefully their prefrontal cortex isn't working enough or you might need to support them and suggest and come up with ideas to do that. I skipped my past, present, future slide, but the idea there was that, you know, hope is furnished by the past. You can look at past and get some ideas for how to have hope and ideas for how to problem solve. We have to face the present as difficult as it might be and manage that. And then we have to have some vision for the future, some meaningful good vision that we can pull back to the present. Those three, past, present, future, then mean we have a story for our lives. There's a lot of research shown that if you can get young people to have a sense of what their life story is, past, present, and thinking about a good future, it's really powerful as an intervention. So you don't want to only be in the present. People who do masses of mindfulness all the time, now mindfulness is great, helps calm anxiety. People who do masses of mindfulness are happy, but they don't find life as meaningful as people who do past, present and future and create that narrative. That was Roy Baumeister's work. It's a a big social psychologist. I thought it was fascinating to keep the big picture perspective. Thank you. That's a really helpful addition at the end and I guess uh, makes us all not so fragile in our connection to things having to go well. Lisa, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. It's been such a privilege to have you here. Thank you so much for the work you have done in this area. It's a work that's been needing to be done. I was so excited when I heard that you were doing this PhD. So look forward to reading more of your work and looking forward to the books that you're going to write coming out of this, hopefully. Let's give Lisa another round of applause. And my bifocals worked. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of our Founders Lecture Series. For more information about Innerborough School and Community, visit www.innerborough.newsouthwales.edu.au and hit follow on the Innerborough Podcast channel for a range of upcoming content.